Father, we gather now for these moments to kind of quiet our hearts, our thoughts, our minds, to spend these, these next precious minutes thinking about your word, thinking about you, thinking about our Savior, contemplating truth, eternal truth. We pray now in these moments together now that spiritual work would happen. Your spirit would be working in us, that your word alive and active would be challenging us, that this would be an eternal moment in these moments we have together. And most of all, we pray that Jesus, our Savior, would be glorified. In his name we pray. Amen. All right, please open your Bibles with me to Colossians. Colossians chapter 3. I'm going to start reading at verse 1. Colossians 3. I'm going to read 1 through 17. It says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. Where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on the things of the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger and wrath and malice and slander and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here, there's not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all of these, put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This passage here is a unit. It's teaching a unified theme. We're going to be looking at it through three sermons, but I want to make sure that, that we don't miss the forest for the trees. Now, last week, I preached on the first four verses, which is online in case you missed it. Uh, we saw that these verses, the beginning of chapter 3, are hinge verses in this letter. The, they, they're a transition paragraph. 
that transition mainly from the doctrinal teachings in chapters 1 and 2 to the more practical applicational teaching in chapters 3 and 4. But they aren't just a transition. They're a foundation. They're a summary of the first two chapters. They've laid the groundwork, the reasoning, the whys for the practical exhortations that follow. It's only because of Jesus and what he has done. It's only because of who Jesus is. It's only because of our identification with him and his death and his resurrection that we are able to seek the things that are above. Since we've died with Christ, since we've raised with Christ, since our lives are hidden in Christ, since Christ is returning and we will appear with him someday, because all of this is true of us and our unification, identification with Jesus Christ, we can and we must keep seeking the things that are above where Christ is seated. And we can and we must continually set our minds on things above and not on the things of this earth. See, what happens now in the next 13 verses is totally related in detailed explanation of these verses, of verses 1 through 4, what it means to live out a practical life, to, to not set our minds on earthly things, but to actually instead seek the things that are above. Today we're going to look at the negative. Today we're going to be looking at things that people who have been united with Christ do not do. Now I want to make two points before we jump into our passage today. First, biblical Christians do not teach moralism. That's to say, we do not teach that the goal of the Bible is to make us good and moral people. Morality for us is biblical truth. We'll see that explicitly taught throughout our passage today. But just living a moral good life is not our goal. See, our goal is to live a life that brings glory to Jesus Christ. Many non-Christians, many people who are not Christ followers are moralists. Living a moral life, living an upstanding life is their goal. Many non-Christians are excellent moralists. They're really good people. They could look at this list that's in front of us in verses 5 through 9 and have a much better outward track record than many people who would claim to be followers of Christ. Non-Christian moralists strive for a sense of being a good person, of living a life with high moral values, but, but without any relation to God, but without any connection to Jesus. Now, they make excellent neighbors, and they make excellent co-workers, but they're lost. See, here's the truth. Not one moralist, no matter how exemplary their life is, can make it to heaven by their good deeds. Good people don't go to heaven. Good people don't go to heaven. Saved people go to heaven. So imagine a pretend conversation at the pearly gates. Okay, Ralph, let's see. You never cheated in taxes. You put in an honest day's work for an honest day's pay. You volunteered at the local homeless shelter. You, you were a helpful friend and neighbor, but you regularly and repeatedly rejected and ignored my son's death and resurrection for you. You see, when you, when you just clearly lay it out, 
You see, there's no amount of moral behavior, there's no amount of good deeds that can outweigh the reality of our sin, that can outspend the cost of our sin, that can outdo the only remedy for our sin. Isaiah 46.6 says that the accumulated worth of all of our righteous deeds amounts to a pile of filthy rags. Romans 3, 10 through 12 says, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Romans 3, 23 says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 6, 23 says, for the wages of that sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life. In Jesus Christ, our Lord, moralism doesn't get you into heaven. Only Jesus gets you into heaven. Living a moral life doesn't earn you favor with God. Knowing and loving and serving his son is the only way to God. Imagine investing your whole life into this great retirement plan. A surefire, can't miss retirement plan that will set you up comfortable retirement. Only to find out that when it came time to draw out of your account, there was nothing there. You had spent your whole life investing into a plan that didn't work, but instead left you broke and ruined. That's exactly what you get when you're on the good works plan. That's exactly what you get on just be a moral person and that's good enough for God's plan. It's like investing your whole life in a plan that the Bible clearly says isn't going to work. And you find out you're broke and ruined. So are you on God's plan? By grace, through faith, in Jesus alone. God's plan. There is no other plan that you can invest in that will pay its dividends for all of eternity. The second thing I want to mention is that we are not Christian moralists or Christian anti-moralists. See, a Christian moralist is someone who would acknowledge Christ, but then ends up living their lives more focused on morality, focused on doing things right, rather than focused on Jesus Christ. These type of believers could tend towards following a list. Legalism, not doing certain things on a list or doing other certain things on a list becomes paramount. Don't smoke, don't chew, and don't go with girls who do. Right? Or guys, for that method, you know, as it works. The emphasis is on the put-off part of the put-off, put-on process. Holiness is reduced to the things one doesn't do. God's justice is overemphasized. The picture of God is of this mostly angry or mostly sad God that's that's... That's vexed because of our continued sin. Sin management becomes the focus of pleasing God. Galatians 3.3 comes to mind. Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now perfected by the flesh? Now, as cultural Christianity over-respond to the wrong emphasis from Christian moralists, it careened into Christian anti-moralists, over-emphasizing the grace of God. A Christian anti-moralist is a, is a person that's so focused on God's love and God's grace and God's forgiveness that the actual commands of God 
tend to get lost and even downplayed. These type of believers tend uh, towards a loose attitude towards sin. God isn't so concerned about what I do or don't do. God's moral directives are right or wrong are, are softened. There's an overemphasis of the put on part of the put off, put on process. Holiness is reduced to just positive ways one resembles Christ. God's grace is overemphasized. The picture of God is mostly of this happy person that's pleased with his children, wallowing, and God's love becomes the focus of pleasing God. Romans 6, 1-2 comes to mind. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? By no means. God forbid. May it never be. How can we who have died to sin, still live in it. See, God's not this scowling old man with a quiver full of lightning bolts just ready to zap us when we get out of line. And God's not some silly old man just patting us on our head saying, there, 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 everything's going to be okay. See, God holds his justice and his love firmly, both. God both judges sin and justifies the sinner. God both commands us, telling us what is right is wrong, and, and forgives us with his grace, willingly abounding in our life. God has expectations in our lives. He expects us to be ever-growing, to, to put off, to put to death sin in our lives. He expects us to be ever-growing, to put on, to adorn ourselves with His love and grace. Christians are supposed to be growing in Christ, being conformed to His image, and thus sinning less in their life. And Christians are supposed to be growing in Christ, being conformed to His image, and thus loving more like Christ. See, the process of biblical change is both. It's both putting off the old self, literally killing sin in our lives, put to death, and putting on the new self, which is being conformed in the image of our Savior. Each one of us in this room, each one of us have multiple things in our lives that we need to be putting off. And multiple things in our lives that we need to be putting on. Why? Because the end of our life, the goal of our life, the living purpose of our life is to be more conformed to the image of our Savior. So let's dive into our passage today. And we're going to focus on the first part of this process of biblical change that's built off of our identification and unification with Christ. The first part of change put off the old self. So look there at verse 5. Corinthians 3, 5. It says, to put to death what is earthly in you. One commentator wrote, we're to put to death the practices of the past. Several images are used in the New Testament to portray Christian living. The believer is to be a disciplined athlete who strives to win the prize. The believer is a faithful soldier who endures hardship to please his commanding officer. The believer is a tenacious wrestler. Engage in a fierce struggle against a crafty foe. Here Paul tells us that the believer is to be a ruthless executioner who eliminates the behaviors of the past. 
God is commanding us to execute sin in our lives, to put it to death. We're not to live with it. We're not to tolerate it. We're not to excuse it. We're to take it seriously. We're to execute it from our lives. You know, our Jesus taught this very same truth using another powerful, different word picture. Jesus said, it's recorded in Matthew 5, 29 and 30. But if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better to lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. For it's better for you to lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. Now, we as believers, Jesus Christ, we take the Bible literally. So we understand literally that Jesus was using a figure of speech called hyperbole to emphasize his point. He's not advocating the actual gouging of our eyes or the cutting off our hands. We'd all be blind, handless people. He's graphically making a point, using hyperbole to show us how serious sin is. It's so serious that you need to amputate it out of your life. It is so serious that you need to gouge it out of your life. It's not to be coddled. It's not to be pampered. It's to be eradicated, amputated. Eliminated, executed, gouged. The Apostle Paul and Jesus are giving us a very clear message. Take sin seriously. In Colossians 3, 5, Paul then lists a few sins. This is not an exhaustive list. This is a representative list. These are not the only sins that we're supposed to execute out of our lives. For example, just because stealing isn't mentioned on our list doesn't mean we don't have to eradicate stealing from our lives. This is a representative list. What Paul does include in this first list is an emphasis on sexual sins. Sexual sins were a major problem in the first century. A major problem. And guess what? They're a major problem today. First on the list is sexual immorality. That's the Greek word pornea, where we get our English word pornography. This is a broad general term for all kinds of illicit sexual behavior outside of marriage. God created sex. It was his plan. It is his idea for it to be enjoyed by one woman and one man in the confines of marriage. Any sexual activity that does not fit that definition is not supposed to be part of a believer's life. Any sexual activity outside of the one-woman, one-man boundary of marriage is sin. Now, when I was a youth pastor, I always loved when God would just clearly spell out the subject. And he nails it right here. See, someone might ask, well, what does God want? I mean, really, what's, what's his will for my life? Turn in your Bibles. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, starting at verse 3. So teen, young adult, parent, grandparent, what's God's will for your life? 
Let me tell you. For this is the will of God. Your sanctification. That you abstain from sexual immorality. That each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and in honor. Not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. That no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. Because the Lord is an avenger in all these. As we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Clear. Easy to understand. Direct, straightforward truth from God's word. This is God's will for your life. It's not me saying it. It's the scripture saying it. What is it? To abstain from pornea, from sexual immorality. The other words listed uh, in our passage today, impurity, lust, and evil desires, further describe our battle with sexual sins. Sexual sin, as with all sin, isn't just a matter of our, with our eyes or our hands or our body. It's a matter of our heart. Now, you don't need me as a preacher going on and on and on about this. But rather, what we all need to do, what we all need to do is to simply ask God to evaluate our lives. Ask him, even right now. As the thoughts are running through your head, ask him, is there any area of my life that falls outside of your command? Is there any area of my life that's outside of your plan for my life? And as the Holy Spirit leads us, as the Holy Spirit convicts us, as the Holy Spirit challenges us, what do we do? We get up and we eradicate it. We amputate it. We execute it. Out of our lives. We take it seriously. As all areas of our lives need to be conformed to the image of Christ, so does our sexual desires and expression. However the Bible, however the Holy Spirit is right now challenging you in the clarity of your own thoughts to follow God in this area of your life, do you know what you should do? Do exactly that. Do exactly the thoughts that are running through your head right now. They're being prompted by God's word and the Holy Spirit. Take those steps and obey. Last on that list, he mentions covetousness, which is idolatry. Covetousness is both an application to our sexual appetites and to greed in general. One commentator said covetousness is a sin that is always wanting more, whether it be more things or more pleasure. The covetous person is never satisfied with what he has, and he's usually envious of what other people have. This is idolatry, for covetousness puts things in the place of God. Thou shalt not covet is the last of the Ten Commandments. In verses 6 and 7, Paul gives us two reasons to stop committing these sins. Because of God's wrath, and because it's our past. On account of sins like these, the wrath of God is coming. God's judgment on sin is coming. It is a certainty that God is going to deal with sin. God's not late. God's not idle in dealing with sin. It is certain 
Because of who God is, his holiness, his justice, his righteousness. That God is going to pour out his wrath upon sin. Now, God's wrath is a future reality. It's a future certainty. But it's a present reality. It's so real, it's talked about as if it's upon us right now. John chapter 3, 35 and 36. If you want to turn there, important passage to look at. John 3, 35 through 36. It says, The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. Whoever believes the Son has eternal life. But whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. The wrath of God remains on him. See, the picture here is that all of mankind has the certainty of the future judgment of the, of the wrath of God on them for their sins. For those who believe in the Son, the wrath of God has been removed. But for those who do not, the wrath of God remains on them. Romans 5, 9 says, Since therefore we believers have now been justified by Christ's blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. It's only through the blood of Jesus, only through the death on the cross, only by him taking the wrath of God, the just judgment on our sins in our place, that we are saved from the coming wrath of God. God's judgment has been removed from us. Why is it incongruous for a true follower of Christ to continue in such sins? Because we've been forgiven of them. Because God's wrath has been removed. Because Jesus' blood, Jesus' death, Jesus' resurrection has saved us from them. How can we continue in something that Jesus died and took the penalty for? The other reason giving is that before we met Christ, these were the type of sins and the way we used to live our life. They're, they're part of our past. If 2 Corinthians 5.17 is true, and it is true, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. It's totally incompatible for a new creation in Christ to be living like his dead past self. It's like a homeless person. Having a long lost relative. Who's left him a million dollars. But instead of living in the new reality. Of the new life that's been given to them. They just continue to live. Cold. Alone. Hungry. On the streets. It makes no sense to live in the squalor of our past. When God, through Christ, has given us a new, abundant, and eternal life. Next, Paul challenges the picture. Excuse me. Next, Paul changes the picture from, ex- from executing our sin to putting off our sin. We're to put off the old man. To put off the old man is, a, is the picture of changing clothes. It's the picture of taking off our dirty, soiled, you know, work clothes of the former way of life and putting on the new clean clothes of our new way of life in Christ. We are to discard our old sinful habits like a set of worn out, useless clothes. Again, in verse 8, Paul gives a representative list of the types of sins we need to put off. 
anger. Anger is a settled feeling, the slow, seething, smoldering emotion that boils below the surface. Rage or wrath is a quick, sudden outburst, a blaze of emotion which flares up and burns with intensity. The Greek term malice refers to ill will, the vicious, deliberate intention of doing harm to others. This ill will will make it will work itself out through us in our angry outbursts and in our sinful speech. Slander is basically the defamation of character. To slander someone is to injure their reputation. Filthy language or obscene talk refers to abusive, obscene language. See, these are interpersonal sins. These are social sins. These are sins that are committed hurting one another. If you notice the difference between the two lists, where the first list is more outwardly scandalous, the second list is more directed to our hearts and our attitude and our words or relationships. These interpersonal social sins are just as condemned by God as sexual sins and greed. While we might be more tolerant of the sins of anger or slander or lying, God is not. While we might, might be willing to make excuses for our outbursts of anger or for spreading gossip or for dishonest communication, God doesn't make excuses for it. How many followers of Christ would never have an affair and might even outwardly condemn those who have? yet never take seriously their problem with anger or their problem with lying or their biting tongue. Our so-called Christian culture might allow us such erroneous distinctions, but God doesn't allow it. See, don't deceive yourself and say, I might fly off the handle every once in a while. I might freely express my anger. I might use my tongue to hurt and abuse my friends or my spouse. But I'm never unfaithful to them. And in so thinking that somehow God's okay with that. He's not okay with that. And guess what? Neither is your spouse. Uncontrolled anger, abusive language are sins that can destroy a family. If you want some stories about how to destroy a family with anger and abusive language. I've got some stories for you. Destroys just as sure as unfaithfulness destroys a family. We have to stop putting sins on a sliding scale of Bad to worse. We have to stop taking sin issues that we have. Stop ignoring them and start taking them seriously in our lives. The scriptures are telling us anger, rage, malice, slander, abusive language, lying. And sins like that must be put off, must be put away, must be discarded from our lives. These social and impersonal sins are part of the old self. The old way of living before Christ became the lover and ruler of our lives. Evaluate. In what areas of your life have you become comfortable with your sin? Pests, right? Bugs and rodents. Even the thought of them can make our skin crawl. But pests find their way into everyone's home, 
at one time or another. The question is, do we hate these pets enough to do what it takes to get rid of them? Right? One survey says that depends on what sort of pest is in the house. Researchers found that, that people will dish out their hard-earned money for an exterminator, meaning they're really serious about getting some serious results when the following pests are in their home. 24% of adults, that's almost one in four, will pay an exterminator to kill spiders. Roughly the same number, 27% of adults, will pay to annihilate ants. With the next uh, pest, the percentage jumps to over half, as 56% will pay to banish bed bugs. I'm there. I'm in that one. The same percentage, 56%, will pay to get rid of rodents like mice or rats. 58% will pay to get rid of cockroaches. And then the number jumps way up again for the bug that can literally bring your house down, termites. 87% of adults, that's, that's almost 9 out of 10, will pay to terminate termites. Notice that except for termites, almost half of the adults will live with some very unpleasant creature rather than calling the professional to ensure that the pests are eradicated. The survey shows that many people are willing to endure a certain kind of pest but not others. Some bugs will tolerate and some we won't. Now, if you take a moment and you take this illustration and apply it to the spiritual dimension of our lives, the same thing holds true, right? Many people are willing to endure certain kinds of sins, spiritual ants, spiritual spiders. But for others, the spiritual termites, we're willing to do whatever is necessary to get them out of our lives. Some sins we tolerate in ourselves, and others we won't. God's challenge in this chapter to us is to exterminate every single one of them, to take our sin seriously, to put off, to kill, to discard the sin in our lives. So what sins are you tolerating in yourself that you need to take seriously? You need to start the process of getting rid of them from your life. Why? Because it's not acceptable as those who are being conformed to the image of Christ to tolerate, to excuse, or to turn a blind eye to our sin. Part of the process of every Christian to grow in Christ-likeness is to be ever eradicating sin from our lives. If you've been a Christian for five years, if you've been a Christian for 55 years, the same desire should prevail as Ephesians 4.22 puts it for us, to put off the old self, which belongs to the former manner of life that is corrupt through deceitful desires. See, not only is not dealing with the sin in our lives not acceptable, for the one who's being conformed to the image of Christ, but it's incompatible with one who is in the body of Christ. Since as verse 11 says, Christ is all and in all, since there's no ethnic, no cultural, social, economic division in Christ, since, since we are his body, since we're one in him, since together we are united with him, it's contradictory to not act like it. 
The interpersonal sins like anger and lying and envy and slander and abusive language and the like are not acceptable behavior from one believer to another. Warren Wiersbe wrote as he was talking about our passage, I'm reminded of a pastor who preached a series of sermons against the sins of the saints. I remember of his, a member of his congregation challenged him one day and said it would be better if the pastor preached those messages to the lost. After all, the church member said, sin in the life of a Christian is different from sin in the life of other people. Yes, replied the pastor, it's worse. Let that sink in for a second. It's worse. It's worse. Because these are the very sins that Christ died for. It's worse because these are the sins of our past, not the new creation in Christ. It's worse because we're tolerating sin is incompatible with the goal of our lives to be more conformed to the image of Christ. It's worse because it's contrary to what it means to live as a member of the body of Christ. There are sins in each one of our lives that we need to take seriously and to do something about. Pray about it. Get the help that you need. Get the accountability that you need. Bring it out into the open and ask God and others to help you. Take proactive steps. There are areas in each of our lives where we need to put off our old self. So evaluate and to pick one. And then take the steps that are necessary to eradicate and exterminate it out of our lives. The Spirit has convicted you. If it opened your eyes to an area of your life, don't stuff them down now. Don't squash them away now that the sermon's ending. Allow Him to move in your heart. It's not going to be easy. Amputation and gouging are not easy words. But is it going to be worth it? Yes. Yes, it's going to be worth it. Confess your sin to God. Confess your sin to those you have hurt. Turn to Him for forgiveness. He will supply the strength to change. Because God's grace and God's wisdom and God's power is there for you right now. Because God's in the business of changing believers. He loves you. And he wants what's truly best for you. Now, this is only the first step in the process of biblical change. There's another process. It's not just no, no, no. It's a replacement process. It's a no, no, no. And then it's replacement. Next week, we're going to be looking at all that amazing verses about things we're supposed to put on in our life. See, having discarded sin in our lives, there are things that are supposed to take its place as believers. And they're wonderful things. They're godly things. And next week, as we gather together, we're going to be looking at that second process of biblical change, putting on the new man. Let's pray together. Father, now in these moments, in these kind of quiet moments, uh, not a lot of messages in our culture that 
that speak to us like your word just spoke to us. And we thank you for that. We thank you how powerful your word is. We thank you for how accurate it is. Each one of us know the level of sin and the tolerance that we have, we have allowed ourselves to have in our lives. Each one of us. And so we just want to be honest with you. As your scripture is honest and exposing us, we want to be honest with you. And so we just pray now that we would take the steps necessary. We would follow the lead of the Spirit in our lives. We would follow the lead of the truth of your Bible in our lives. We thank you for your love and your forgiveness. We thank you that if this is the 10 millionth time we've come to you for forgiveness, there you are, ready again, second chance and second chance, ready to give us grace and to forgive us, to strengthen us and to give us hope and life. We're convinced of it. We know it. We thank you. And so we come before you in honesty, wanting so much as the goal of our lives be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. In his name we pray.